Uh, if you would, go ahead and take your Bible, open up to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I, I, love, I love coaching. I love coaching soccer. Uh, I played it, played it in college. Uh, I got my coaching license uh, my senior year of college. Uh, coached at a high school in Wisconsin uh, for a year, and now I'm, I'm still continuing to coach. Um, coach presently, I, I've got a season coming up here in a couple of months, and I'm looking forward to that. Currently, I'm coaching middle schoolers. That's, uh, that's a challenge in and of itself, uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. But uh, it's a ton of fun. I, I, love, I love coaching. Um, part of the challenge of coaching is looking at issues, trying to diagnose what's going on in the field, trying to diagnose what's going on in training. You've got to manage different personalities. You've got to manage different people. Um, and then you've got, to, you've got to really take the team that you have and learn how to play with the team that you have. So one of the things that I really, that I really enjoy about coaching is that I, I, have a, I have a set coaching philosophy. Every coach, every coach does. Um, where we have some principles that we play by, that we have principles that we live by, that we seek to embody and, and uh, to really teach to our team, those things never change. Those things never change. So one of the th aspects of my coaching philosophy is that we play together as a team. All right, soccer is a team where there's 11 men on the field all the time, and we play as a unit. So if you're watching the game and you don't know much about the game of soccer, it can look like just 11 individuals running around on the field. But the beautiful thing about the game of soccer is that it's 11 guys working in beautiful cohesion all across the field. So my job as a coach is to teach the 11 middle schoolers, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, that I have on the field, that you're not 11 individuals, that we work together as a team. So every drill that we do, uh, every, every aspect of training and practice is built around that philosophy. While our philosophy doesn't change, sometimes our tactics have to change. Um, so if I'm playing an opponent that's better than us, if I'm playing an opponent and we're outmatched, sometimes my philosophy, my tactic, my philosophy doesn't change, but my tactics look a little bit different. In soccer, we have something, and I, I struggle with it. This is not my personal personality at all, but in soccer, we have something where we call, call it parking the bus. And what that means is the team that we're playing is better than us, so we're going to drop all 11 players into our half of the field. We're going to defend like crazy and hopefully get a chance to counterattack and steal a goal and win. Right? It is ugly, and I hate it, but occasionally we do it because it helps us win. Right? We change our tactics. If we are a better team, if we're faster, right, if we're playing and we're overmatching an opponent, what we'll do is we'll spread the field as much as we can, and we'll look to attack and attack and attack. The tactics look very different. It's my job as a coach to help diagnose the right tactic as we approach a game. But our philosophy never changes. Um, the longer that I get involved in, in church ministry, it's amazing how much pastoral work and coaching are, are pretty similar. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of similarities between the two. Um, what I want to spend the next couple of Sunday nights talking about is our philosophy, something that never changes. And what we've built our philosophy around here at Arise Baptist Church is we built it around a philosophy of making disciples because that's what we believe that Jesus has called us to as a local church. That's a philosophy that never changes. And in our staff meetings, we talk about everything that we do. How does this hang on the clothesline of discipleship? Why? Because we believe that God has called us to make disciples. But sometimes our, our tactics have to change a little bit as our body, as our body changes. Um, as we have different people that come and go, sometimes it, it dictates and it necessitates that we change our tactics and it changes the way that we do things a little bit. 
So what I want to do over the next five weeks, I think, is we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about philosophy. Why are we doing what we're doing? And then we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about our tactics. Because we we're going to make a few adjustments. Because we feel like, here at Arise, we can do a better job of doing what God has called us to do in making disciples. And so we want to realign a few things. We want to tweak and change a couple of things uh, tactically to help us be more effective in the process of making disciples right here in our own local church. So I'm excited to jump into this study with you. I'm excited for the opportunity to explore this and to examine God's word and, uh, and to share with you. Uh, part of my job at the church uh, is Pastor Will sets vision, sets goals, uh, helps define the culture that we want to have here at Arise Baptist Church. Part of my job is to make sure that we can do those things on time and on budget. And so, uh, that's, so that's my job. And so I'm very excited to say, so we've had a lot of conversations about this. We've had a lot of conversations about philosophy and where we want to go and about the culture and vision of our church. And in putting hands and feet to this, I'm excited to share with you where we're going to go in the next year or so. All right, so let's ask the Lord to help us as we jump into this. John chapter 15, verse 5 says that without him we can do nothing. So let's uh, spend a little bit of time in prayer together, and then we'll jump into the text tonight and try to answer the question, what is disciple making? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to examine your word tonight. And I'm excited about this series. I'm excited about this study. And uh, it has been transformative for me. And uh, you, you have used this to um, change some of the way that I, that I look at ministry. And, and you've used this to grow me. And so I pray that, um, pray that you would work through me and uh, that you would help me to communicate clearly. I have a lot of thoughts in my head. And I pray that you help me to communicate those clearly and effectively. And we'll give you the honor and glory because you're the one that deserves it. We'll ask these things in your name. Amen. Discipleship is a term that gets thrown around a lot today. If you were to walk into any Christian bookstore and if you were to look at their Christian section, you would see a large, you would probably see several titles related to discipleship. But something that really doesn't get defined a lot is, like, we, we don't actually define the term well very often. So we kick around the term a lot. The root word for disciple is used over 250 times in the New Testament. I mean, it's clearly, it's a, it's a theme, it's an emphasis, it's a focus. It was a focus of Jesus. It was a focus of the New Testament writers. And yet, sometimes we don't have a whole lot of clarity on it. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is just answer the question for you, what is disciple making? And I want to do that by starting with what disciple making is not. Sometimes if we strip away some of the exterior things and say this is not what it is, it actually helps us bring it into a little bit better focus for us. So what disciple-making is not? The first thing that disciple-making is not is disciple-making is not a program. Disciple-making is not a program. Now, we run programs at Arise Baptist Church. Okay? We run Awana. We have student ministry. Right? We just ran Vacation Bible School in Houston for Christ over the past month. Those things are programs, okay? And, and they're designed to help us, and hopefully we are using those effectively to help us accomplish our mission. But making disciples is not a program. That is not something that we add to the ministry of Arise Baptist Church. We need to understand that disciple-making is the ministry of Arise Baptist Church. Disciple-making is not a program because disciple-making is what God has called us to do. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, that is the ministry of the local church. So we run programs to help us accomplish 
what Great Commission ministry actually is. But understand that the process of making disciples is the ministry of a local church. It's not an add to the ministry. This is what God has called us to do. So disciple making is not a program. It is not optional. There are a lot of programs that we run that are optional. Like we could choose to do that or we could do something else, right? We could run VBS or we could go a different direction, right? We have a lot of programs that we could flex and change. But one thing that we cannot change is Jesus's command for us to go and make disciples. That is the ministry of the church. It's not a program. It's not a program. The second thing that it is not, it is not merely reaching. Oh, I'm sorry, not merely teaching. I got those two confused. My bad. All right. It is not merely teaching. Um, for me personally, this is one of the this is one of the mo- this is one of the things that I struggle with the most. I like I enjoy teaching. I enjoy coaching. All of those things are a part of it. So this this is the area where I'm comfortable. Like I could stand up and I can teach people and, and I can feel good about that. But I have to understand that if I'm going to be effective at making disciples, I have to go beyond simply teaching. While teaching is an essential component of making disciples, it is not the essence of making disciples. And going hand in hand with that is disciple making is not merely reaching either. Disciple making is not merely reaching. And what I mean by that is disciple, we need to be reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to evangelize. We are called to share the gospel. We are called to reach a lost and broken world with the good news of Jesus Christ. But understand that making disciples goes beyond merely reaching people with the gospel. The Great Commission says that we need to go and make disciples. That's evangelism. And then we see them baptized and then teaching them to observe all things. So if we're going to be effective in fulfilling the Great Commission given to us by Jesus Christ, it involves both evangelism and teaching. But it's not just one and it's not just the other. Sometimes we'll hear people say, well, I'm really good at evangelism, but I'm not so good at the teaching part. Or I'm really good at teaching, but I'm going to leave the evangelism part to other people. Well, understand that if we lack in either of these areas, we are being disobedient to the Great Commission command that God has given to each of us. There's no excuse for us to not be sharing the gospel, and there's no excuse for us to not be imparting the spiritual DNA that we have into the life of another person. Both of these are essential in fulfilling Jesus' Great Commission command. Also, disciple-making is not merely discipleship. Disciple-making is not merely discipleship. Discipleship is an essential piece of disciple-making. But disciple-making goes beyond discipleship. Because we just talked about the evangelism component of this. But as we're going to see in a minute, making disciples is your investment into the life of another person. And maybe that goes beyond sitting down for an hour a week and just walking through a book study together. That is you helping somebody and bringing them closer to Jesus. And that is a life-on-life investment. So while discipleship is an essential piece of this, discipleship is not the essence of disciple-making. It's an essential component, yes but it is not the essence of what making disciples is all about. Disciple-making is not a book. Disciple-making is not a book. Now, I'm thankful that we use the Continue book. I like it. I've gone through it myself. But understand that somebody doesn't just go through a 13-week study in the Continue book, and then magically, these people are now disciples. 
The the process of disciple-making doesn't end after a 13-week study. This is an ongoing process. This is an ongoing process. So while book studies are helpful, disciple-making goes beyond studying a book. And disciple-making is also not a responsibility given to organizations outside of the local church. Disciple-making is a local church command. So in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when Jesus told his disciples, and he gives them the Great Commission, okay, by extension, that commission goes to the local church. It is an individual responsibility. It is also a local church responsibility. Now, I'm not going to hammer on this point too hard, but I'll just say this and leave it here. I feel like today the church at large has gotten really good at outsourcing their disciple-making responsibilities to Christian schools and to Christian colleges and other parachurch organizations outside of the local church. But if we are going to be passionate about fulfilling Jesus Christ's Great Commission command, we need to understand that that is an individual command and it is a local church command. So we need to be asking the question, how can we at Arise Baptist Church fulfill Jesus' Great Commission command of making disciples? Now, I'm thankful for Christian colleges. I went to one, and I teach at one. I'm thankful thankful for those things. But I understand that the process of making disciples, I can't just give my disciple-making responsibility away. That's my command. That's our command. It's our responsibility to make disciples right here in our local church. So that's what disciple-making is not. So we need to understand that. So hopefully we've maybe stripped away some of your preconceived notions about disciple-making. Now let's look at what disciple-making is. If you're in Galatians chapter 4, look with me at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. It says this, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. To me, this is the essence of making disciples. When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, there was a major crisis in the province of Galatia as Paul was writing this book. Paul had come in and had planted churches. You can read about this in Paul's first missionary journey. But after Paul leaves, now there are Judaizers, false teachers who come in after Paul, and they are teaching that you can be saved by grace, yes, but you need to add circumcision and law-keeping to it. So now they're taking the grace of God and they're distorting it because the message becomes Jesus plus something else. And the churches of Galatia are being led away into false doctrine. And Paul writes the book of Galatians as an impassioned defense of the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And chapters 1 through 3 is all about that. And Paul comes to to chapter 4. By the way, Paul uses some really strong, some strong language in the book of Galatians. Like Paul doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't give them a warm greeting. Like Paul starts writing and he gets down to business immediately. But he gets here into chapter 4 in verse 19 and we see Paul's pastoral heart coming out. We see his concern and his love for the Galatian believers coming out. And he says, my little children. These are individuals that Paul had helped lead to Christ. They are his spiritual children. And Paul looks at these individuals and he desires to see them continue to grow. And then notice he says, I travail in birth again. It makes me laugh that Paul uses that because Paul was a man and obviously never gave birth to a child. But he uses the imagery, right? He uses that because it's something that people can understand. But he talks about the pain and the agony and the suffering of that process. He's saying, look, I am laboring and I am suffering for the purpose of what? To see Christ formed in you. That is disciple making. It's evangelism. 
mean, Paul had seen these individuals be baptized, and now Paul had a desire to see them continue to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, even though he was no longer present. But he felt so strongly and so passionately about, their desire, about his desire for them to grow into the image of Jesus Christ that he writes this confrontational letter to bring them back to the truth. Okay, this, is, this is the essence, the essence of disciple-making. So let me give you a couple of points under this. What disciple-making is? What disciple-making is? Disciple-making is a normative, local church, individual responsibility that God, the Holy Spirit, empowers as Christ builds his church. It's a normative. That means that this is normal. This is what Jesus Christ prescribed for his church. There's a lot of church growth methods and a lot of church growth strategies that are out there. Okay? The seeker-sensitive model, the prosperity gospel model, like these guys have understood how to, if, they, if you want to build a church, there's a lot of models out there where you can build a church quickly. But can I tell you, that is not the way that Jesus Christ designed for his church to be built. Jesus Christ designed for his church to be built through the work of evangelism, through confirming individuals, right, and believers' baptism, and then by seeing them grow into the image of Jesus Christ through the process of discipleship. That's Jesus' model. So that's the, the method that he has prescribed. And we've already talked about the fact that this is a local church responsibility. This is something that get, the, the church is the vehicle that God uses to accomplish his will in the world today. But this is also an individual responsibility. When Jesus Christ gave this great commission mandate, he gave it to his disciples. And the individual nature of that command still carries on to you and I today. So that means that you can't sit back in the pew and say, well, Pastor Will and Pastor James have got that covered. And so I'm just going to sit back and watch the, watch the visitors roll in. No, this is an individual command. All of us together have to be involved in the work of making disciples. In the Greek, when he says go, right, when he says go there and make disciples, that is an imperative. It's a command. That's an individual command for each one of us. I was recently teaching the teens, and we were working through the book of Jonah together. And as I was studying through the book of Jonah, there was something that just really kind of struck me in the book of Jonah that I, that I hadn't realized before. Um, a lot of times when we hear the story of the book of Jonah, we apply it to young men who we feel like God has called to the ministry and they're running away from God's call to the ministry. But that's not actually what the book of Jonah is all about. Jonah is actually probably an older man when that book is written. And Jonah is somebody who has been a faithful prophet in Israel for a long He's been prophesying in Israel up to that point. God has used him. In fact, God used the prophecy of Jonah to hold back the Assyrian invasion into the land of Israel. So God has used him in some remarkable ways. But God comes to Jonah, this prophet who has walked with God for a long time, and he tells Jonah to take that message and to take the message of grace to the Ninevites, and Jonah refuses. And Jonah runs as far as he can in the opposite direction. Jonah is disobedient to God's command to go and make disciples. And this is an individual that's walked with God for a long time. This is an individual that God has used. So that tells me that it's possible for all of us to be disobedient and rebellious to God's great commission mandate if we're not, if we're not careful. Because we could be walking with God. We could be really excited about leading people to Jesus. But after a while, it could just kind of get tiring. And we could just kind of get into a position where we come in and we slide in and we sit 
we listen, we take notes, we shake hands, right? And we kind of go through the motions of the Christian life. And we kind of just, it's not that we're doing anything wrong necessarily. We just kind of get into a mode where we're just slipping back and not doing what God has called us to do. But indifference to God's great commission command is disobedience. It is disobedience. And this is an individual responsibility that is given to each and every one of us. So if I was to sit across the table from you, and I was to say, who have you tried to share Christ with in the last week? Who have you tried to share Christ with in the last month? Who are you actively seeking to lead to Jesus? Who are you investing yourself into for the purpose of helping them grow into the image of Jesus Christ? If we were to have that conversation, are you being obedient to Christ's great commission command? Or are you being disobedient? It's a command, so there's only two options. Either we're obeying what God has called us to do or we're disobeying what God has called us to do. And if we can latch onto this and if we can grasp it, as a church, and if each of us would take ownership and responsibility for fulfilling the Great Commission ourselves, it would be absolutely transformative to what God could do here at Arise Baptist Church. It's a normative local church individual responsibility, but understand that you and I don't accomplish this on our own. It is God-empowered. Okay, this is God the Holy Spirit working for us and in us and through us. And I think we all understand that without God, we can't do this work on our own. This is a spiritual work. We need to put in the effort and we need to put in the energy. But understanding that it's God that accomplishes that work as he works for us and in us and through us. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And understand that we are not building a Rise Baptist Church. Jesus is building a Rise Baptist Church. And as we engage in the method that he has prescribed to build his church, he has promised to do it. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Jesus tells Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the question is, are you and I engaging in Jesus's method for building his church? It's also, secondly, it's also each saint shouldering the responsibility to spiritually reproduce themselves. It's each saint shouldering the responsibility to spiritually reproduce themselves. You guys heard of the, uh, like the master apprentice model? It's a, little bit, it's a little bit of an outmoded, uh, a little bit more of an outmoded idea today. But I was really kind of brought face to face with this when I went and actually I was out of the ministry for a couple of years and I was working at a soccer company here in town. My wife and I were coming to Arise. We were serving faithfully as lay people here, but we hadn't joined the staff yet. So I was working at a soccer company, and this is the first time I was really kind of introduced to the idea of an apprentice. So uh, I had been coaching for this company. We were working and coaching children as young as two all the way up through age eight. And I'll tell you, the first time that I sat across from eight two-year-olds sitting on a soccer ball, that was the scariest thing that I've ever done in my life. And uh, I'm trying to coach eight. You talk about an adventure, man. Coaching eight two-year-olds, anything can happen. All right? And it was awesome. All right? So I'm sitting across from these eight, eight two-year-olds. By the way, nobody told me, and this is just my own ignorance, but nobody told me that, like, two-year-olds don't, don't talk. Um, so 
Uh, I hadn't really worked with a lot of two-year-olds up to that point. And uh, so I'm sitting across from these eight two-year-olds and like, we're supposed to, we're supposed to have these, we're supposed to do these little cheers with the kids. And like, we're supposed to get them to repeat words back to us. And uh, so as I'm saying this, and then they're just looking at me and their faces are like stone cold. And I was like, oh man. So I'm like doing these cheers by myself. And I'm like, all right, what word do we want to say? And I tell them, and then they all just look at me. So I'm like saying it again twice, and all these parents are looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, oh man, I'm telling you, uh, it was wild. So I'm sitting across from these eight, from these eight two-year-olds, and uh, needless to say, my first experience with two-year-olds, uh, the session was not great. All right, all these kids were running everywhere; they're kicking soccer balls everywhere, and uh, and so I, I I needed I needed some help. So what I did was our director of coaching called me into the office and we kind of talked through it a little bit. And I had told her ahead of time, I have like zero experience with two-year-olds. And so she came and watched my session and said, no, that's definitely true. So she brought me into a couple of sessions. And uh, so I, I just went and, and I, sat, I sat with her and I watched the session. And I essentially just participated as a big kid. And so she pulled me in and she had eight, eight two-year-olds and I sat on a soccer ball right next to, right next to uh, in between a couple of two-year-olds. And I participated in the session and ran and did all the same stuff that they were doing. And I just, I learned from her. And it was amazing. She said stuff and the kids did what she told them to do. And it was, it was just incredible to watch. And I learned things from her. Like I tend to be a big, dynamic, loud person generally. And so I learned that with two-year-olds, I needed to not be that way. And I needed to learn how to quiet my voice a little bit. And calm is contagious, right? And I was freaking out these kids by being big and loud. So I needed to, to bring down my, my personality a little bit. And I needed to bring down my voice a little bit. And I needed to understand just how to communicate with these kids. That was just something I hadn't learned before because I'd never done it. But as I sat with her and as I, I walked through a couple of training sessions with her and as I asked her questions and she taught me how to coach two-year-olds. And it was awesome. And I remember I was sitting there, my same class a couple weeks later, I was sitting there and I was instructing and, and teaching and our training session was running and it was looking the way that it was supposed to. And she pulled up in her car and came and stood on the sidelines and watched and didn't say anything. She just watched on the sideline and watched as this training session worked. And she came up to me afterwards and said, that was an awesome session. You know what she had done? She had reproduced another coach. Like she had taken her knowledge of two-year-olds and how to coach them and invested that in me. And now I learned how to do that so that I could run a training session for two-year-olds. And you know what happened the next season? The next season, we had another coach that came in, kind of similar in personality to me, and they put him with me so that I could teach him how to coach two-year-olds. Why? Because they wanted me to reproduce what I had learned in him to help make him a better coach. It's, it's reproduction. Right? And that, it's this idea of we're taking somebody and we're taking the knowledge and the skills and the abilities that the Lord has given to us right? and, and the opportunities and the things that we have learned and known and we're taking those and we're seeking to invest that and pour it into the life of another person so that they can grow and they can get to the level where we are or maybe even surpass us right? so that that way they can take that and invest it into the life of somebody else. But listen, I, our director of coaching didn't take on nine people at a time. She had one person at that training session. She had me. And I know that she was working with other coaches as well, right? But she didn't try to knock out all of her work in a single training session. She was willing to invest in one person at a time. 
And if you and I would take on the individual responsibility to say, listen, I, we don't, we, you don't need to disciple the whole church. You don't need to help the whole church grow into the image of Jesus Christ. But can there be one person that you can help become more like Jesus than they are today? Pastor Will can't do this all by himself. I can't, I can't do this all by myself. And in fact, I brought in a lot of help when it comes to this, even discipling our teenagers. Because I can't disciple our teenagers by ourselves, by myself. Right? So I'm thankful for Joe, and I'm thankful for Champ and others who have jumped in there to help us disciple these teenagers on Wednesday night. We can't do it by ourselves. And so often, I'm talking big picture, broad brush here, but so often when you look at churches today, there's one or two people maybe engaged in the work of making disciples. And generally, they get paid to be at the church five days a week. But there's not actually a lot of disciple making that happens in the pews. But can I challenge you? Like if I was to sit across the table from you and if I was to ask you, who is one person that right now you are intentionally trying to lead to help them grow to be closer to Jesus? Could you give me somebody? Could you, could you name somebody? Like, yes, this is this person. And then if you were to give me a name and if I were to go ask that person and say, hey, did you know that they're trying to lead you and help you grow closer to Jesus? Would they actually know that you're trying to do that? But if each of us got a vision for this, and if each of us was willing to say, hey, I'm going to spiritually reproduce myself in somebody else, it would be absolutely transformative for our church. Right? And then finally, it's the commitment of a life to another life for life. Yeah, it's the commitment of a life to another life for life. This is why Paul uses this childbirthing imagery here. Right? Why? Because it's a commitment to a life for a life for a lifetime. Now, parents, you might want to, but uh, my guess is that you're not going to disown your children. All right, there may be days where you, where you think that that might be an option, right? <laughs> where you put all your cards on the table. I know that there are probably days that my dad wanted to do that with me, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because I'm a part of his family, right? And he loves me unconditionally. Can I just tell you, if you are going to engage in the disciple-making process, if you lead somebody to Jesus Christ, you now have a spiritual child. Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith. And Paul was intentional about investing into and pouring his life into Timothy to help Timothy grow into the image of Jesus Christ. But if you lead somebody to Jesus, you now have a spiritual baby. And I'm guessing that most of you, when you had a child, you didn't bring them home and say, hey, fridge is there, right? When you're five years old, school bus is going to be by to pick you up. And I'll see you when you're 18 and a little bit more mature and we can have an adult conversation, right? I mean, you guys didn't do that, right? I mean, when you, have, when you had a child, right, you cared for that child and you were up with them in the middle of the night when they were screaming, when they were upset, occasionally when they had to get their diaper changed, right? You, you were there to help them and walk them through that process. It is not different in the spiritual life. We will have individuals that we are seeking to disciple that have hard This is messy, Right? Occasionally people make messes and they need somebody to come alongside of them and to help encourage them and challenge them and help them clean that up. They're going to need people to challenge them. They're going to need people to love on them when it gets tough and they're going through hard and difficult times. Now this is the commitment of a life to a life for a lifetime. We have a responsibility to invest and pour ourselves into other people for the purpose of helping them grow into the image of Jesus Christ. 
I had a, Trevor, is that picture up there? Can you throw that, that picture up on the, on the screen? Right. So I like, I like this picture. Right? This is kind of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay, so as you, are, as you are following after Jesus Christ, we're looking at somebody else and saying, hey, follow me, come alongside of me, learn from me. I, I think that this picture would even be better if these two stick figures kind of had their arms around each other, to be honest. Right, and understand that in 2D you can only do so much. But in all honesty, right, if it's a commitment of a life to a life for a lifetime, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my arm around somebody else and I'm going to say, look, I want to help you grow into the image of Jesus Christ. And I understand that that's going to be walking with you through some challenges. I understand that's going to be walking with you through some difficulties. That's also going to be rejoicing with you when great things happen. But I am going to help you grow into the image of Jesus Christ. That is what the process of making disciples is all about. This is what Jesus has called us to do in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Okay. Is, that, is that clear? Hopefully that makes sense. This is what disciple-making is. So I feel like a lot of times we throw around terms like discipleship and disciple-making, and we don't really define them clearly. So I want to, in order for us to be able to continue to move forward and talk philosophy and tactics, we all <laughs> we need to first really clearly define what disciple-making is. And so that's, that's my goal, is I want you to have a clear and healthy understanding of what this process is of making disciples. So in youth group, we started doing discipleship on Wednesday nights, and we were trying to be really intentional about who we paired, about who we paired with who. So Grant, Grant is, one of my, is one of my guys that I have in discipleship on, on Wednesday nights. You know what that means? That means that Grant sometimes texts me during the week and says, Hey man, check out this video. Check out this video on my on my swim meet, right? The whole time that March Madness was going on, because it was basketball. The whole time that March Madness was going on, he's a Kansas fan, so he was texting me, right? Obnoxious text every time that Kansas advanced to the next round of the March of the March Madness tournament. You're wearing a Jayhawk shirt tonight. Come on, man. All right, so right, but he's texting like, you know why? Because we I want to have that disciple making relationship with him, and that to me means that when Grant turns 18 and goes wherever he's going to go for college, does whatever he's going to do. Does that mean that, oh, man, he's out of the youth group. <laughs> Woo! All right. Glad that one's done. Time to move on, right? Is that, no, that's, that's not what God has called me to do. If I'm going to make that commitment to Grant, that means that I need to continue to invest in him. That means that I can need to continue to care for him. That means that I have the responsibility to help him continue to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, even if he's off studying at school somewhere else. Why? Because I care about him. I want him to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a commitment of a life to a life for a lifetime. Okay, does that make sense? Makes sense. Grant, you need a different shirt, man. All right, let's talk, let's talk really quickly about programs versus relationships. All right, programs versus relationships. Disciple-making is inherently a relationship. Yeah, you have to be willing to get into the mess of somebody's life and you have to be willing to help them beat them where they're at and help them grow into the image of Christ. It is inherently a relationship. At a lot of churches, a lot of the churches that I grew up in, we were really good at running programs. We weren't necessarily great at making disciples. So we need to talk a little bit about, and, and we run programs here at Arise Baptist Church, and we don't, we don't apologize for that. We just want to make sure that our programs are helping us grow into the image of Jesus Christ. We want to make sure that our programs are helping us to fulfill the command to make disciples. We just seem to be intentional about the way that we use programs. But I want to explain to you what it looks like, what it would look like if we only ran programs. 
If we only ran programs and didn't have an objective of making disciples. Because what do programs look like? Well, first of all, programs have a clean start and end. I'll pick on VBS a little bit because I'm in charge of it. <laughs> and uh, we just got done running it. Okay? So VBS started at 6.30 on Sunday night. And it ended about 8.30 on Wednesday night. Okay? And when it ended, everybody said amen and went home. Right? <laughs> I mean, it was great. It was a super fun three days. It was awesome. We had a great time, but it had a clean start and it had a clean end. With VBS as well, we trained individuals to serve for a limited time. Many of you guys were involved and invested and engaged in Vacation Bible School. And we had some meetings, and we had some trainings, we had some sessions, and Angie and I met with specific people and made sure that they had the tools and materials and resources that they needed. But understanding that we are training and spending time investing in people to essentially serve for four nights. So we're training people, yes, but we're training them to serve for a limited time. It consists of a few individuals giving the word to many. It consists of a few individuals giving the word to many. So Pastor Will and I had an awesome time teaching the kids, being able to open up God's word for them. So he taught the juniors fourth through sixth grade. I had the kindergarten through third graders. Now that I learned how to teach little kids, by the way, teaching little kids is awesome. It's like the best thing ever. I love it. It's fantastic. All right, so... Um, so I had the kindergarten through, 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 uh, through third graders, and it was a ton of fun. But understanding that in each evening, we had two people who were opening up the Word of God and sharing it with a, a large group of people. It takes a lot of effort to generate participation. Sometimes it ends with the realization that nobody's going to participate. So we did a ton of work. The Saturday before, uh, two Saturdays before we hit vacation Bible school, uh, Dave Griffin and I were up here, what, Dave, 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning, something like that. Dave's pumping out chorizo, right, so we can make some breakfast tacos. We had dessert, or not dessert, sorry, we had breakfast that we were making, and uh, those muffins were like dessert, man. They were awesome, all right? So, uh, but he's up there. He's cooking breakfast, making sure. We had about 40 people that came on a Saturday morning. We went out, worked for about two hours, distributed over 2,500 flyers. Okay, awesome, awesome. Uh, we spent time putting advertisements online on Facebook and Instagram. We had registration page on Eventbrite. We're working hard. We're communicating. We're scheduling text messages to go out to people that, like, we had a whole communication process and system in place trying to get people here. You know what? We had a lot of people that signed up. We had people that signed up that never showed up. So we spent a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of resources. And again, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing that we're doing that because we're trying to reach out and engage our community. But understand that there was a lot of work and a lot of effort that went into that. And our high night here was 50 kids. And I'm not saying that to discourage us. I'm thankful we had kids get saved this last week. And it was awesome. And now we need to be intentional about taking those kids and baptizing them and helping them become disciples of Jesus Christ. But understand that we spent a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of effort pouring into this program. But did we have 150, 200 kids? No. No. And that's just the reality sometimes of program-based Ministry. It often, sometimes, when we run programs, it can result in minimal success. It can result in minimal success. And sometimes it forces us to turn around and ask the question, what was actually accomplished? It forces us to ask the question, what was actually accomplished? So I'll give you an example. For Houston for Christ, we went out in our community in a week, and we passed out 33,000 flyers or so in a week. All right, a lot of work, a lot of sweat. Right? The vans smelled awful, right? <laughs> which is awesome because that means that we had sweaty kids working really, really hard for a week. 
Right, we passed out 33 flyers. We ran three community engagement events on Friday night. Had really good attendance. Um, people came. There were a couple professions of salvation and those type of things. But the question then becomes, on Sunday, how many of those people actually turned around and came to church on Sunday? How many of those people are actually becoming invested in the process of making disciples? And the reason that I'm saying that is this. We can run huge campaigns and we can see thousands of people saved, but have you ever been discouraged because you ran, you were part of a big campaign and there were all these numbers and all these statistics and two or three Sundays later you sat around and said, well, where are all those people at? We can run programs, but understand that programs don't always result in maximum level of success. And that's not knocking programs, right? Because programs do what they're designed to do. But that's why we try to take the programs that we run here at Arise Baptist Church, and we're trying to be very intentional to use those programs to help us in the process of making disciples. But that's why we have to understand that the mission that God has given to us is not to run really good programs. Sometimes we get really, really excited about running programs because they're fun and big and lots of energy. I mean, VBS was a ton of fun last week. And we get really excited about that stuff and we want to put all of our energy and effort and resources into those because we get good numbers and it looks like there's a lot of stuff happening, but there's not always a lot of long-term, long-reaching impact. So we have to figure out all right, so that's why, that's why we don't just want to be a program-based ministry. This is why it has to be put on the clothesline of making disciples. Okay, so what is actually doing this in a practical way? Like, what does actually a, a relational model look like? Okay, so if we say, hey, we're not going to be a strictly program-based ministry. Instead, we're going to be relationship-focused. What does that look like? Well, first of all, success can take decades. Success can take decades. All right. Parents, did your kids mature overnight? Probably not. All right. I sure didn't. I'll tell you that. Right. I grew up. I grew up in a pastor. I grew up in a pastor's home. Um, and uh, whew, man, it took, it, took, it took me a long time. Right. I, spiritually speaking, I had every potential advantage to be like ahead of the game in the spiritual maturity component. Right. But I, I was very, very immature. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I actually got into Bible college, and I, if you don't know my story, I'd be happy to share it with you sometime. But I actually got kicked out of Bible college as a senior Bible major um, because I was a knucklehead and I lied about it, right? And so the Lord was very gracious to me. My school was very gracious to me. I actually had to come home. My dad did some intensive discipleship with me. Parents, here's, here's a good one for you. And my dad brought me home, made me go through the book of Proverbs. I had to find every time that a fool was mentioned in the book of Proverbs and then illustrate how I had fleshed that out in my own life. You talk about a humbling assignment. Good night, man. So my dad did that with me. Um, my school was very gracious with me. I, I was able to go back, finish, and, and get my master's degree. But I just look at that and say, for somebody, for a kid who had every spiritual advantage, Parents who loved him, right? I was in church every Sunday. Uh, I was involved in all the programs. I was involved in all that stuff, but I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't get saved until I was 16. Um, I mean, I've, I was really good at kind of toeing the line and understanding all the rules and being able to fly under the radar. Holy Spirit didn't get a hold of my heart until I was 16, and it probably wasn't until I was about in my mid-20s that I really got passionate about walking with the Lord. So understand that success Success can take decades. It can take a long time. And I'm just telling you that from personal experience. So if we're going to get involved in this relational disciple-making model, we need to understand that 
we have to be patient because this is going to take a while. This is why we call it the commitment of a life to a life for a lifetime. Because if you're just in it for three months or if you're just in it for a week, right, or even if you're in it, do you know the average tenure for a youth pastor in America today is 18 months? Right? If you're just in it for 18 months, and we're not going to succeed in our disciple-making mandate. Okay? We have to be in, in, engaged and invested in this for the long haul. Also, relationships and disciple-making train people to serve for a lifetime. Trains people to serve for a lifetime. I can train people to, I can train people to serve for a week. I can train people to serve for a year. Training people to serve for a lifetime, okay, that, that is an incredibly high calling. If we can invest in and help people grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, and if we can impart our spiritual DNA into somebody else, and that allows them to be a faithful servant of God right in their local church, what an investment and a spiritual legacy that can leave. Many individuals are involved in training. Many individuals are involved in training. Pastor Will and I have talked about this. As shepherds, right, as under-shepherds of Jesus Christ, we want to be working hard to you know, work ourselves out of a job. Don't worry, there's always, plenty for us, there's always plenty for us to do. But in the sense of, if we're, if we're always jealous of holding on to, to being the ones that are presenting the truth of God's word, then we're not, we're not being effective in, in doing our job. We're not being effective in doing our job. Um, a couple years ago, I had, a, I had a really talented, I had a really talented assistant coach. Um, she was from Germany. Uh, she was like 40 years old, but she still could run like she was in her teens. I mean, she was, and, and she was just an incredible soccer player. She understood the game. She knew how it worked. She knew how it functioned. And she was really, really gifted at understanding the attacking aspects of the game. She knew how to help us score goals. Um, I played goalkeeper when I was in college. So defensively, that's, that's, more, my, that's more my strength. That's more, uh, more kind of where my head's at. If I was to be the one to say, hey, I'm the head coach. I've got to be the one to do this. So I'm going to be the one to just, I'm, I'm going to run everything on the, you know, on the training pitch. I'm going to be the one to do everything. And I don't utilize her skill set and I don't utilize her ability. I'm not being the best coach that I can possibly be. So what we would do routinely is we would split our sessions in half. And I would take our defenders and she would take our attackers and we would work separately, we would work individually, we would come together and then we'd come together and play. And at halftime of our games, I would say, hey, Coach Maria, give us a couple points on attacking. And then I would give us a couple points on defending and then we would go from there. Why? Because I wanna get as many people involved in the training process as possible. She was better at that than I was. She was skilled, she could connect with those, and then too, with her being a girl who was playing, I mean, with her being a woman and I was coaching girls at the time, like she could connect with them in ways that, that I couldn't. So I wanted to use her skill set to the maximum ability. In the same way, you guys as the body of Christ have some really unique skills and abilities and you can reach people that we can't reach. You have connections and you have relationships with people that we'll never have relationships with. So if we can get the maximum amount of people involved in taking God's word and opening it and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. It only makes us more effective as a church. So Pastor Will and I are committed to not 
holding on to all the teaching and training responsibilities so tightly. Right? We're saying, hey, we want to take, I mean, obviously God has called us to handle the text and we're going to do that and we're involved in the training and process. But we want to take that and then we want to pour it and invest it in other people. I have been in churches where the pastor, the, the senior pastor is the only one that disciples. The senior pastor is the only one that runs Bible studies. And can I just tell you, that's an ineffective way to do ministry. And it doesn't fulfill the great commission command that God has given to us. Because each of you needs to be a shepherd for somebody else. We are called, we need to be shepherds together. And you need to say, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. So again, that comes back to, are you engaged in this process? If you're involved in relationship, then we need to understand we're going to try to get as many individuals involved in training as possible. Also, these relationships, they grow naturally. They grow naturally. You meet people in the regular rhythms of your life that I'm not going to meet. Uh, Angela and I have a friend, uh, she and I, a week, from to, a week from tomorrow, we're heading out on a trip and uh, we're getting, out, getting away for an early 10th anniversary celebration. So uh, we have a friend coming over to the house, uh, a girl that I coached with for a while, and she's going to dog sit for us while we're away. All right. So she's somebody that we have a relationship with that you'll probably never meet. A couple of you may. A couple of you have met her before. Okay? But most of you will never meet her. Angela and I have a relationship with her. I mean, she's our friend. She comes over, plays games at the house and things like that. That's an opportunity that I have to be involved in the Great Commission to try to share the gospel with her, to try to lead her to Jesus. She's on my list. Okay? Um, my, one of my assistant coaches over at St. Francis, he's on my list, right? trying to lead him to Jesus for the purpose of making disciples. Those are individuals that I meet and I interact with in the regular rhythms of my life. It just comes out of the natural flow of what I do on a weekly basis. You interact with people on a weekly basis that I might never meet. But if we engage in those relationships with a Great Commission mindset, right, how transformative could that be if we led friends and neighbors and coworkers to Jesus if we were thinking through this Great Commission command intentionally? Okay, it was great to see this last week at VBS. Right? One, of Champ's, one of Champ's coworkers was here this week, and, uh, and his, daughter, his daughter was here and participated in VBS all week long. You know what? That's somebody that Champ has met just through the regular rhythms of his life and invited them to come. They were here. They heard the gospel probably, what, five, six times this last week? Their daughter heard the gospel five, six. What an incredible opportunity just to be able to be invested and engaged in the lives of somebody else. That, that's just a natural relationship. Yeah. I would also argue that relationships fulfill the Great Commission mandate given to us by Christ in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And the reason that I argue that relationships fulfill the Great Commission mandate is because if you are going to teach somebody all things, that means that you need to have a relationship with that person. You need to have a relationship with that person, right? People are like banks. Have you ever heard this? People are like banks. You have to make deposits before you can make withdrawals. Okay? And it's really dangerous to overdraw. Okay? So you need to be willing to invest in the life of another person. If I need to bring challenge to somebody's life, I need to know that I've got a significant enough deposit there to be able to actually take something out. And so if I'm going to be invested in helping somebody grow into the image of Jesus Christ, there's going to be times that that takes encouragement. There's going to be times that that takes challenge. There's going to be times that that takes time and work and effort. So relationships mean that we are going to be pouring in and making that investment in the lives of other people so that we can 
right, effectively help them grow into the image of Jesus Christ. But I can't effectively, I can't effectively do that from, from the platform. Pastor Will can't effectively do that from the platform. Okay, disciple-making just doesn't happen during a one-hour Sunday morning message. So what we all have to do is we all have to shoulder this responsibility of making disciples ourselves. In youth group, as it currently sits right now with our schedule, I, I only teach the entire group one time, and that's on Sunday nights. On Wednesday nights, I don't, I don't teach our whole group because we want to be intentional about making disciples. So when the teens come in on Wednesday nights, they come, we have round table set up in the fellowship hall, and they come and they sit down at, at a round table, and they know which table is theirs. Right, so they come and they sit down at the table, and I have, I have the same group of guys every single week, okay? Between three or four, three or four teenagers. And the reason that we've done it that way is because I want to have a smaller number, and I say, hey, these are, these are my guys, and I can invest in, and I can pour my life into these guys. And we've recruited other, other men and other ladies to help us in that process as well. But I recognize that I can't effectively disciple our teenagers if I'm just upfront teaching just myself all the time and they're just sitting and listening. We've got to be engaged in this process. We've got to grow in this process together. We've got to be studying together. We've got to be learning together. We've got to be passionately pursuing Jesus together. Right? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So that's our philosophy. That's our philosophy. I have one more lesson on philosophy next week that I want to share with you. And then from there, we're going to move into some tactics. All right? What is this actually practically going to look like at Arise Baptist Church? How are we going to look at over the next year? How are we going to look at fulfilling this Great Commission mandate more effectively? Let's do this. Let's pray. And then we're going to turn the live stream off. What time we got? Six o'clock. And then I have, um, I have one very, very short assignment for you as we close tonight. All right. So let's do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to spend a little bit of time in your word tonight. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to come and study, talking just practical, practical stuff. Uh, this is what you have called us to do. This is, the, this is the Great Commission. This is the Great Commission mandate. And this isn't just a program. This isn't something that we add to the church. This is the essential ministry of our church. And it's something that involves each of us. And Father, if we're, if we're just coming in and if we're just sitting listening, leaving, and not really engaging in this command. I pray that you would convict our hearts. I pray that we would repent because to not engage in this command is disobedience. So convict us where we need it. I pray that you would cause us to confess and to repent. And I pray that you would help each of us to commit anew to engage in this process of making disciples. We'll give you the honor and glory for it because you're the one that deserves it. We ask these things in your name. Amen.